to the Web3 Prof Podcast. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. I'm here with Sebastian Davies, who is the VP of Research from Aqua Now. Sebastian, thanks for being with me here today. Thanks for having me. It's a good time. So, uh, Sebastian, we're going to um, talk about um, some interesting aspects of uh, finance today. Um, before we get into that, I'd love to hear from you. Tell us your background. How did you get into the world of crypto or Web3? Um, yeah, it's kind of a funny story. So, I guess for I come from a traditional financial background. Um, done a bunch of different stuff um, from uh, like treasury management at a public oil and gas issuer. I worked at a hedge fund. I worked at a bank um, selling uh, institutional equities and, and derivatives. And uh, throughout that time, I had a few friends who kind of got into the into the crypto side of things. And one in particular was always kind of, you know, telling me to buy and all that kind of stuff. And I was um, always saying, I'm like, oh, I'm a stock guy. You know, I work at a hedge fund. This is my edge. I'll, I'll do this instead. And I've since come to think that, like, you know, no one really has an edge. <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, um, I moved to Toronto uh, in 2020, so during the pandemic, uh, and it was like one of the most locked down cities in North America. And so I had um, a lot of extra time on my hands because I couldn't really go out and make friends or, or do anything. Mm. And so I, um, once again, my friends started like hounding me. This was right after DeFi summer. And they're like, look, you really got to look at this stuff. Like it sounds like uh, the financial things that you're interested in are, are happening in this space now too. And so if anything, you can help us kind of understand what's going on. And so I first started looking at the like online money markets like Aave and Compound and was pretty taken by them. I thought it was a pretty like a super interesting piece of technology where there's just, like, you know, um, piece of code that people would borrow and lend against. And it kind of, you know, made sense. Uh, the, the rates were, you know, a little bit uh, crazy, I, I thought. But at the same time, you could see a world where over time this would, you know, be could be something that was like institutionalized or whatever else. And so um, that kind of got me thinking about crypto in a different way. And then I remember just sitting on my uh, sitting at my uh, desk on, you know, uh, in the stock market or whatever else and kind of seeing little hints here and there that this change is coming to uh, to my space and mm. I can sit here and wait for the for that to happen or I could try to like go and join uh, the, you know, the, the innovative crowd. And I happen to know the guys from Rockwell now for a long time. Uh, one of those same friends who'd been hounding me to buy crypto the whole time was kind of number I think four or five or something like that in the, in the door there. And so I reached out to them and asked if there was a way for me to uh, come aboard. Amazing. And, and that decision for you to leave traditional finance to go into, you know, the seedy underbelly of finance and crypto as some people probably believe it to be. Was, was that a, a controversial decision amongst your peers? Were they like, Oh, what's he doing? He's not doing well in life. He's working in crypto. Yeah, uh, for sure there was, um, I mean, this was top of the market too. Okay, uh, so, <laughs> okay, that changes things. Yeah, like this would have been, so I, I started January of 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, so things were, you know, just, I guess, coming off a little bit. But by the time I told my my work beforehand, so I would have told them right at like, you know, the, the very peak kind of thing. $69,000 Bitcoin. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. I, I top-ticked it, I top -ticked <laughs> it. Yeah, not, not good. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there was definitely some people who were wondering about that. Uh, I had some friends who really kind of grilled me on the whole idea of like, you know, even just leaving the bank because it's a pretty good job. Like I had a I had a pretty good, uh, good gig and, you know, they'd moved me to Toronto recently to, you know, try to um, accelerate my career and, and that. But uh, yeah, it just it just it was really resonating with me. And I'm glad I, I'm really glad I did the, the move as well, because um, it, like that that job was, is awesome and it's, you know, going to it's, it's going to be there, I guess. But this is a pretty unique opportunity, I think, to, to be part of something, maybe not from the grassroots level. I kind of I feel like I've kind of got it just after that period, but um, still a lot of 
um, like collaboration and, and everyone working together and that kind of thing, which mm. you don't really see a lot in traditional finance. Like you, you, like the people on the buy side or the investors, they all kind of think their ideas are their intellectual property. And then certainly the bank's not about to like co-host events with other banks, right? Unless yeah. it's like a charity thing. Yeah. Um, and so whereas here, it's, it's this like, you know, real um, feeling of community where, you know, say for example, I'm doing a meeting um, for like early stage investing, like I do uh, work on our like our venture team. If I'm meeting a company and we're not going to invest in them, uh, I can still connect them with someone else in the ecosystem, and it's like that's expected, right? Or if we if we're not investing in them, they don't take that the wrong way. They might still do bar, uh, business with another part of Aquanow or something mm. like that instead. It's yeah. it's very collaborative, and I'm I'm I, it's a really cool um, experience. That's amazing. So tell us what um, like who is Aquanow? This is a this is a brand that probably a lot of people aren't familiar with. So break down like what do you guys actually do yeah uh, yeah good question and you're, you're you're correct i think for the size of the company uh it's uh, definitely not a it, it kind of flies under the radar a little bit yeah um so we're uh we provide uh liquidity and trading infrastructure to financial service businesses who want to enable crypto on their platforms so um that can be anything from like a retail exchange uh who's already got market makers or people who um provide um bid and asks on, on different tokens uh, for example um but they can also use our api to um add some depth to their to their order books uh so that just means that you as a user when you go to trade there there's more a bit like uh, tighter pricing to be able to buy or sell because more people are are, are quoting markets and and is this going to be on centralized exchanges or or, or is this also in DeFi or one or the other? Uh, okay, so for now, it's all centralized exchanges mm -hmm. or, or other centralized counterparties. So, for example, like a Neo Bank or a Robo Advisor. So, if you're, um, you know, logging into something like a Robinhood or something like that, uh, and that you can buy and sell ETFs or, or stocks, and you buy or sell Bitcoin or you know Ethereum or stable coins or whatever, um, that would be us on the back end that does all that. And is it only crypto, or do you do traditional financial products as well? Uh, it's only crypto. Okay. So when I use and and what other what what other major exchanges or brands um, are you guys underpinning that we would know? So we don't really talk much about the the list of clients because okay. I mean they're kind of competitors against one another. So if uh -huh. I say one and not the other, it can be bad. I see. But in Canada, for example, um, if you buy crypto, there's probably a fifty or sixty percent chance you're buying it from Aquanow in one way or another. I see. Uh, not, not you won't face us, but uh, it'll be like like that. Um, and then that's about a third of our business overall. So while we are like big in Canada, we're a, a global business. So we've got office in Dubai, an office in Turkey, uh, people who work for us out of the APAC regions as well, licenses in you know all those regions in um, in, in Europe as well. Actually, I should say in in, in the UAE, we have a provisional license, not an operating license yet. For the <laughs> that's an important distinction distinguishing factor yes yeah for sure i don't want to be misrepresenting or anything like that but <laughs> um but yeah so it's it's cool it's it's a it's a big business but because it's infrastructure you don't really hear about it mm. um we're trying to get out into the public a bit more now um so people like me doing things like this but yeah. uh yeah otherwise so do does the public need to know about you guys like do i need to know who aquanow is as a if i'm a day trader or if i'm just the average guy buying crypto every now and again do 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 I need to know who you are or does that, is your business model really fully a B2B model? It is totally B2B. Yeah. So it, it helps if people know the brand and know the name so that when um, our, our salespeople or our executives are out there trying to grow the business, that they're able to um, recognize that brand, right? Because if, if they've heard of, you know, AB and ABC, but they haven't heard of Aqua now, it's um, makes it like a, a bit more of a difficult conversation. Whereas like, oh yeah, you guys are a market leader. Perfect. Okay. That makes it a bit easier to put your, your, um, you know, uh, proposal to the top of the pile.
So when I log into crypto.com or or formerly, you know, FTX, um, do I is there a way for me to find out who is um, who is providing liquidity for the tokens I'm trading? Or is that typically information that's not publicly available? And should I know that? Like, should I care? Uh, that is a good and interesting question. I don't know that it's publicly disclosed. Um, you know, the the other the other groups in the world who who do this kind of work, they also operate a little bit behind the scenes. Yeah, they tend to be. Um, you'll see them at crypto events sponsoring, um, and like so they'll have like booths and logos and stuff like that there. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, um, I don't think typically no, and I I. I um, I don't actually know why that would be if there's a regulatory reason or, right. or something else, but, yeah. um, and, and no, you, it doesn't really matter who you're dealing with on that side, uh, in the sense that, um, best execution is best execution. So the, the, the price is price and you know, that, that, that should work. And we don't ever like custody or, or, uh, or, or hold assets. It's really mostly just like a pass through to, uh, to, you know, on execution basis. Yeah. Okay. So you've written quite a bit, um, and you're publishing um, blog posts and things like that for Aquino on various different topics. And I would say they're quite complex topics. They're quite f complex financial topics for like average people to, to understand outside of the financial industry. But I'd love to get, you know, kind of a sense of, of some of these things that you talk about or that you write about or that are important to your industry. Because, you know, for people who are getting into crypto, you start to hear some of these terms and you're like, what is that? You know, what is a ZK proof or what is a privacy pool? And you hear these terms and it's kind of like almost spoken like a bunch of people know what it is. And then it leaves the rest of us thinking, boy, I'm just not quite smart enough here. I don't have never heard that term before. So I'd love for you to explain some of these things. So first thing I want to talk about is like, what is a privacy pool? I've read um, stuff you've written about privacy pools, you know, why do we care or why is this a relevant thing for us to consider? Uh, yeah. Um, so to your point on like jargon, it's, it's tough, right? And finance has its own set of like its own right. kind of, um, you know, glossary and then you've got crypto with its own and then you throw like technology in there too. It's, <laughs> it's, it's tricky, you know, like thank goodness for Google yeah, um, yeah, yeah. or like ChatGPT, I guess now. Um, but, uh, so, so privacy pool, um, it, it's come about because, um, typically on a public uh, blockchain if you if your wallet is inter um, is interacting with the chain you know transacting or you know swapping or whatever it might be all of that history can be seen um, which doesn't really matter if you're not doing a lot with it but I mean to the extent that people are going to start um, spending a lot more time on chain doing different things interacting with social apps and all that kind of stuff you start to leave a, a pretty big footprint um, this is actually something that the uh, authorities in, in many countries have come to like because they can actually, you know, see uh, what's happening, observe the chain, maybe try to track um, illicit activity and that kind of thing. So it's, um, it can be a positive, but I mean, uh, I think at the end of the day, if the government really wanted to know how you're spending all your money, like using your debit card, they probably could find out, but sure. it's not something that's publicly available for everyone to see at any given moment. Yeah. And that's effectively what, 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 what's happening when you're transacting on chain, uh, unless you um, are, are using some sort of like privacy protection. And so different iterations of technology have come about to, to try to protect people's identities or, or distance their, like maybe their real life identity from their wallet identity. Um, and you know, that, that, that's a journey that the industry is kind of continues to go through. Uh, but a little while back, um, you know, if we'll, we'll run it a little bit further. So um, last year uh, there was um, a protocol called Tornado Cash, which is like a mixer uh, whereby people could send 
um, you know, send tokens, um, you know, in, in, in the front door and then withdraw different tokens on the back door. And then the the, the the providence of the tokens leaving can't really be sourced because there's so many different like transactions happening in this at this protocol level. Providence meaning the original place which they occurred. That's right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what that means is that the this the wallet taking the, the, the funds out, all of a sudden these funds don't have a, a long historical trail of where they came from and, and all that. Um, and so that um, can be, uh, you know, a, a, an interesting way of erasing a, a, trans, a transaction history if you want to provide uh, preserve privacy, which is good. But unfortunately, a lot of bad actors were using that to... Um, to uh, you know, clean funds or that, that had been stolen from a, from an exploit or a hack or or something like that, or yeah. even maybe for for like money laundering purposes. Um, and so the um, the authorities in the U.S. Uh, shut that down. Um, they actually uh, pressed charges against. I think they've now since jailed the uh, the, the creators of that protocol. That's creating a, a whole a whole other buzz uh, in terms <laughs> of like you know code is law and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it's it's a really fascinating um, area of um, of exploration. If you want to fall down a rabbit hole one weekend, it's uh, it's a pretty good one to, mm. to to go check out. But um, nevertheless. Um, that's kind of sparked a, a, a discussion around like how what are some other ways that we could try to like bring privacy to blockchains mm. without um, ruffling those feathers too much. And so um, Vitalik Buterin, who um, you know is like a figurehead for for Ethereum, um, proposed um, along with uh, a few other folks as well um, uh, the idea of like a privacy pool, whereby you could deposit um, tokens into a, a, a protocol or like a smart contract and um, you know, using zk proofs, which I'll talk about in a second, mm. uh, or uh, you could you could attest that the the histor the history of these transactions was uh, legitimate, uh, and then you could um, at a later date withdraw funds from that pool, and then have those now be uh, have the history of those uh, those those tokens be be cleared out. Um, so so it anonymizes the transaction. Yes. In some way. So how is that different than a mixer? Or how is that different than Tornado Cash, which became so controversial? Because to me, it sounds like it's the same thing without understanding both of them. Both of them. Um, so, in the case of Tornado Cash, you actually could opt in to do what the this pro protocol was going to do. Okay. No one really did it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, it was kind of a you know an un unbinding uh, you know constraint. But uh, in the case of the privacy pool, um, you're uh, there's there's like a, a waiting period as well. So um, the, the the tokens come in. You you can attest that this history is not coming from from um, ill-gotten goods. Yeah. And then uh, you can withdraw. And there's like a, a temporary waiting period. Um, and, and other levels of complexity that they have added on over you know through, throughout as well. But like, like days or minutes or like what kind of waiting period? I think initially it was like a couple days. Okay. Uh, so not going to work at an institutional level. But yeah. The idea would be that the money uh, the tokens would go in and then there'd be a cool down period. Mm -hmm. At that point, uh, the history of the wallet could then be, be be tested further, right? So then it's like, oh, hold on a second. These funds actually came from this this hack or this exploit over here. Those are not going to be, um, you know, those are going to be frozen or flagged or, or you know, not going to be able to be anonymized. Would that be um, uh, a human being doing research to figure that out? Or is, is the technology going to figure out if it came from a hack? It'd probably be a mix of both. Uh, but yeah, certainly there would be like a, a council of people, you know, yeah. a community kind of governing the the, the the pools. And is the pool then, the pool is run by a company that is taking a fee or something like that? They have to make money somehow for managing this pool, I would imagine. 
Yeah, it would be like a decentralized application. Okay. Uh, and so it would probably have its own token, um, you know, with governance and voting and, and all that kind of, uh, yeah. like you see on, on a lot of different um, protocols. Okay. So, uh, so I have, um, so I want to send you Ethereum. I process this through um, this DeFi protocol called a pool. And uh, a couple of days later, you get the Ethereum, um, but no one can track where it came from nor do they know that it entered your wallet. Am I understanding that correctly? Uh, that would be correct, yeah. You would see uh, the there would be a transaction on chain that would say that the protocol sent um, this wallet or my wallet, um, yeah. you know, X amount of tokens. Okay, and is so is there a risk then, because we're putting trust at some level in the protocol to not, because they're holding custody of our coins during that cooling period, right? Uh, well, it's a smart contract, okay. Uh, so it would be governed by, um, you know, like t your typical on-chain governance. And so, um, beyond the the two-day cooldown period, if there was no flagged incidents or or uh, issues with that, based on like people voting with their with their tokens, then the f the funds would be free to to be then transferred. Yeah. Is so. What are, what are the big risks that we have here, or what are the what are the hangups with this becoming the thing that everybody does? So. Um, the, the issue I see is, um, well, I guess the, maybe a couple things first, uh, there's the idea that like, there's always smart contract risk. So there's some, you know, some code, code vulnerability or whatever yeah. else could, could, could cause an issue. So there's, there's that, um, then the idea of, I mean, there could be some issues around, um, you know, the governance as well. Like sometimes decentralized governance is messy. Uh, so there could be uh, some problems there. The, the cooldown period itself is really like a, a non-starter for any kind of institutional kind of use case, right? For for people like ourselves, who it's like, could you wait for me a couple of days for me to send you these things? Or if I have enough, um, uh, you know, credibility, sometimes maybe they could shorten that wait period. But nevertheless, right? There's there's issues around around that, um, and so some of the ways we've seen or think other ways that have been proposed to get around this are. The idea of you could use um, again the, the the zk proofs, which I forgot to talk about before, but I will clarify that what that is in a minute. Um, to uh, to to say that someone's um, KYC or like know your client or or like anti money laundering um, identification has been recorded at, at some point. Now I don't um, that doesn't have to be known who, who like the. There's not, there's not to be a link uh, beyond the fact that it has been recorded, uh, but I can say like, okay, this person's identity has been attested to, uh, and then they can transact on chain privately. And then if the government, if the if the authorities or someone sees patterns of transactions that are looking suspicious, mm -hmm. then they can say, okay, hold on a second, who who is this or who, you know who's doing these things over here? Yeah. And then at some point, the identity could be revealed. Yeah. Um. And so that's a I think a based on like how I look at the world from a more traditional financial background, that makes a little bit more sense, I think, uh, in the sense of, you know, you don't have these cooldown periods, it's not kind of clunky. It's, yes, you are providing um, off-chain identity, and so some people will not like that, and, you know, I, I hear yeah. you, but it's just, it's a lot, um, it's a lot shorter of a, a you know, a, a gap to go from the way the current trend, traditional financial system works to, to an on-chain kind of ecosystem. And so by having this kind of like mid gap, at least like the author like the authorities, the incumbents, everyone's kind of makes it a little bit more, uh, more comfortable to get to that level of adoption, I think. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Well, yeah, let's get into then. So yeah, ZK proofs. Uh, I hear this term all the time. Um, zero knowledge proofs. Uh, you know, what, what does that, uh, what does that actually mean and how would we, or why do we care about uh, using that type of technology? 
Um, so I think one of the better like analogies I've heard used uh, to explain like a ZK proofs would be, let's say I had a, a box and I wanted to prove, I wanted, and I said, there's a toy in this box. Um, how could I convince you that there's a toy in the box without actually opening it and showing you? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe I could shake it and then you're like, oh, okay. Or and you could, you know, roll it around and feel and you're like, oh, mm -hmm. okay. Actually, like I have pretty good confidence that this is, there's a toy in that box. I'm, I'm happy with that. And mm -hmm. then you can, you can move on without opening it. And so ZK proofs do a version of like shaking it and rolling it around using cryptography. Okay. Um, and so. And, and so this is to, um, this is to help, um, uh, uh, people verify the identity um, or the wallet of someone that's sending crypto from one place to another. It's is it a it's a technology to anonymize somebody? Yeah, it it doesn't always necessarily have to be around identity. It can be around uh, other th like other um, things. For example, it could be um, I can show I can claim to have um, um, operated under on all the rules of a of a blockchain, for example, without actually having to show you check, 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 I've done all these things, right? And so uh, it's just a, it's a way to make things a bit faster and a little bit more efficient while also providing um, some privacy. Okay. So um, when we engage with a centralized exchange, we have to go through these, this KYC process of, you know, scanning our driver's license and moving around on camera to make sure we're a real person. And we jump through all these hoops um, to make sure that we're legitimate. And, and then, you know, presumably the central centralized exchange checks us out to make sure that we're, we are who we say we are. Um, is a ZK proof like the DeFi version of that type of thing? Is it trying to accomplish the same type of uh, type of process? Um, it, it could be for sure. Uh, so, so say for example, um, you and you're you're starting to see this happening right now as well. Um, you know, with uh, you know Coinbase um, ha having base and then bringing some of their identity to that chain and, and providing people some perks to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So, say for example, I um, go to a, a a KYC operator. Okay, these guys have this as their business. They're going to provide yeah. on-chain identity. Yeah. I do the likeness test. I show them, send them my my driver's license. So now they know that okay, uh, Sebastian lives in Canada. Maybe he lives in British Columbia. He is alive. Um, and maybe he's over 19 years old, for, for example. Yeah. Um, and then now when I go to interact with protocols on chain, um, I can have this, maybe say, for example, I have this token in my wallet or, um, you know, the, the, that technology is embedded with the application that I'm going to use. It'll say, okay, this is the, the wallet address. The, so this person who has the private key to this wallet um, is, you know, known to be my, like myself. Um, and then based on that, um, he should be able to transact, you know, like a Canadian um, um, living in British Columbia who's over 19. Yeah. Um, so it would be like if you go to um, like a, a, a liquor store, for example, or you go to a grocery store and that happens to sell beer or whatever else. Um, they, they only need to know that you're over 19. They don't need to know your address or whatever yeah. else, that kind of thing. And so it's similar to that where you would, um, without having to tell the, the without the, um, the, operator of the application needing to know um my name my my date of birth and all that kind of stuff it just needs to know yes it, it, it he does have these um these check marks and then can act, now can interact with it and so as you start to bring like securities like government securities on chain um not anyone can just go and buy u.s government debt for example but um 
people who who can should be able to to do so freely and so um that's a, that's like kind of where this next step goes where um someone who's like canadian it's like oh okay it's like sebastian's um over over 18 and you know not from a barred country so he can own this security which represents u.s debt kind of thing okay okay that's interesting i'm gonna uh, i don't often do this but i'm gonna actually read a question because i don't want to um confuse any of these terms because you know some of the stuff is just so helpful so when we understand zk proofs okay that that's great so we see that proposed privacy pools leverage zero knowledge proofs to verify the legality of funds without disclosing transaction history. How might this approach balance the need for user privacy while satisfying the KYC and anti-money laundering uh, regulations? What do we, what do, how, how does this connect to kind of the privacy pool? Um, so uh, the, the zero knowledge proof could then be used to say uh, the transaction history is legitimate yeah. without having to like reveal uh, to who it who, is. Yeah, exactly who it is. The, as, it, as it was proposed um, at the baseline, the privacy pool um, that, that Vitalik and others uh, suggested didn't actually have a, a KYC component to it necessarily. They did op open the door for maybe including that though. Um, and so that would also be used on the, on, on the K, like uh, using zero knowledge proofs, uh, you know, to, to, to say, this person is okay, but um, you know, without having to actually reveal them the, the the identity. And is this active right now? Like, if, if I go trade on Ave or something like this, um, or, or if I'm just a regular guy trading, are zk proofs active today? And something that I might be involved in without even knowing it, um, or is this still a, a concept and a technology that's being developed? Uh, it is active today. So there are um, versions of uh, the like Ethereum virtual machine, mm -hmm. um, which are zero knowledge proof based um, that have gone live um, within the last 12 months and they're starting to, to scale up. And so that's uh, again, offers the ability to provide things, um, provide like Ethereum like uh, functionality uh, with faster, lower gas fees and then have this privacy layer. So that's, that's one example. Um, one of the companies that we're invested in actually called Hinkel protocol, um, they provide the ability for people to, um, you know, buy, swap, um, stake, and um, and, and transfer uh, tokens anonymously as well. Uh, they they use zero knowledge proofs, and then they they also um, leverage like the off chain KYC. And so as a result, um, you know, people can go and use it, make swaps, stake, do all this kind of stuff privately, which is really helpful if you're like a DeFi fund, for example. Mm -hmm. You don't want necessarily the whole world knowing uh, how you're positioned on 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 things. Um, and so you could you can obfuscate uh, the identity of who's doing that. Mm. But if a government says, "Hey, who is this?" It's like, "Oh, it's you know, um, ABC DeFi fund." Okay, that's great. Um, I, yeah, I think that's that that's interesting to also know that you know this is this is relevant technology that's happening today. But I guess it's still in its infancy or its early stages. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think like the the notion of um, zero knowledge proofs is not super novel. Um, its application in blockchain technology is um, I mean, things move so fast, it's hard to say, right. uh, but it's, uh, I mean, now there's this, um, 
kind of emerging situation, uh, emerging technology called fully homomorphic encryption. And that's, that's a, <laughs> say, say it again. Fully homomorphic encryption. <laughs> okay. It's another rabbit hole. You can water <laughs> down. I mean, I'm not a cryptographer, so I like, I'm really kind of a little bit out of school on, on some of these things, yeah. but, uh, it, it's, it's also quite interesting. And there's people experimenting with making that, uh, uh, you know, um, F FHE, um, based, uh, blockchains as well. Okay. Um, so it's, it's it's definitely um, constantly moving, moving very quickly. Uh, but you know, it's it's pretty cool. You don't have to, um, you know, be super into math to, to to understand how they work from a very high level. And right. it's that's pretty neat. Um, and is this um, are privacy pools and zk proofs an Ethereum thing, or is this technology that's being rolled out in all kinds of different blockchains? Um, yeah, no, it's definitely being used um, in many places. Um, so. Uh, uh, for example, um, Solana's got some zero knowledge proof pro uh, protocols that I'm that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, I don't know too much about what's going on in Cosmos. Like Secret Chain, or, or uh, yeah, the the Secret Chain has uh, some privacy preservation kind of components to it. Um, so that there's uh, different versions of, um, of of approaching this. So some some are using zero knowledge proofs. Some are using that uh, fully homomorphic encryption, and then others use like encrypted uh, environments uh, or trading environments, where it's just a it's a you know a different type of encryption that's protecting it, uh, and it provides uh, privacy that way. Okay. Okay, that's great. Something else that you've um, that you've um, written about is um, this notion of compliant DeFi. Um, can you explain um, compliant DeFi? Because to me, it seems like it's a little bit uh, that these are two things that don't really fit together, that compliance and DeFi are kind of at the antithesis of each other. So what does that what does that actually mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. And I think the the, the more that, that the, the notion of what that is uh, gets tossed around a little bit, I think um, the the term. DeFi is just going to fall off of that. I think it'll probably be something closer like protocol-based finance or, or something like that okay. where, where you use smart contracts, but um, there is a level of permission uh, permission to using it. Okay. Um, so it's, it's you know, it does kind of um, run afoul of the the ethos of, of DeFi and yeah. a lot of crypto in, in general. Yeah. But again, it is that like that middle step going from the tradition, traditional finance to, um, you know, blockchain-based finance. Right. Uh, and so um, I think, for example, if I go back to that example with the, the government debt thing, where like not for, for better or for worse, like the rules that govern the world currently say that not everyone's allowed to own U.S. government debt. Mm. Um, and so uh, how could you create, how could you leverage the, some of the functionality of, of you know, blockchain um, uh, or smart contracts, like maybe like an Aave, like a lending market or something like that. Um with with uh, with like government debt as collateral, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, not everyone's allowed to to transact in it, but if we create a a market where the people who are interacting with that protocol are have all been identified or deemed to to be uh, you know allowed to do so, then that can be like a, a smaller kind of closed off market where people could still transact and and enjoy the benefits uh, and the efficiencies of the the the, the underlying technology while. Um, adhering to the to the rule of law outside, and would that rule of law be? Um, I, I guess the challenge some companies have with the rule of law is that every state or every province has different regulations, or every country has different regulations. So now you have to, I guess, have to identify where your clients are in order for you to apply the rule of law from different countries 
um, in order to be compliant in those places. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely um, you know adding layers to the to the onion. I guess <laughs> uh, as opposed to peeling the back. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and and I, I guess it's um, what it what it does unlock is efficiency for the traditional financial kind of system mm-hmm. um, because you can you can use code to to, uh, to to enforce some of those those rules right yeah uh, which is which is awesome I think especially co- coming from coming from that world and seeing how much paper and uh, all that is is required to to do transactions mm-hmm. it's like it's slow you know we use Excel for all things there's like a thousand Excel sheets all over the place many of them hold the same information as elsewhere right. you can kind of organize things in a different way that I think you could bring a lot of efficiency to the space um, and you know not uh, you know I, I'm not I'm not discouraging the DeFi as well. Like I think a lot of the best innovations will come from that open, really, um, you know, flourishing challenge the status quo type of type of technology. Yeah. But I think that when it starts to integrate with the traditional financial system, you just have to, you know, put it in a put it in a um, wrap it up in a way that it's like a you know palatable. Yeah. Okay. And we see traditional finance getting more and more involved with crypto. It seems Jamie Dimon has been spoken, you know, positively about crypto which historically he he hadn't many times and we see now BlackRock um you know moving into the BlackRock ETF um and so what are the implications of this or or where do you see traditional finance intersecting with you know some of these decentralized um ideas that we talk about so that is one of the things that I'm most excited about um in the space and something that I I'm still kind of taken aback to see just how much innovation has happened through the bear market in in crypto mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Where throughout that time, a lot of like the world's largest financial institutions and some of the most in, you know critical financial market infrastructure has been undergoing pilots trying to explore what it might be like to operate um, you know on chain, private chain or public, a mix of the two. And, um, you know, and you start to see like uh, opinions change Bitcoin as this digital gold and, you know, new uh, non-sovereign store of value. And it's uh, it's really fascinating to see, like, you know, in in previous cycles, um, which I was observing, not participating in, you know, you'd always see the the banks and other and brands get excited at the top. Right. Whereas in this case, they were really investing at the bottom, which was quite fascinating. Um, So some of the things that I'm, I'm most interested in are. Um, uh, this uh, Chainlink is a provider of infrastructure to um, actually many different blockchain ecosystems. Um, and they have a, a new thing called the cross-chain um, interoperability protocol. Um, and think of it as just like a way for different blockchains to communicate with one another and then transfer value. Mm-hmm. Um, they've actually just done a pilot program with um swift a society of worldwide interbank transfers or something like that yeah, yeah. and uh and then a number of the world's largest clearing houses so uh, dtcc in the states uh euroclear in europe um and uh so they've worked on you know how could a bank uh interact with blockchains without having to change its back office uh function mm-hmm. so typically if a bank wanted to engage in a secu- like uh, a bank from country a wants to buy a security from country b they would um, initiate the, tr- the the purchase using the brokerage kind of channel, and then the money actually has to get sent over. Uh, and so, to to let the, the the receiving bank know that this is happening, they would send a swift message, mm-hmm. um, and then later the money would kind of trickle in through the um, through the correspondent bank networks, uh, and then 
that would that's why it takes <clears throat> multiple days for a, a transaction to clear. So it's the the trade happens and then the money is received and then the ownership can transfer. Uh-huh. Um, and so with uh, Chainlink and then um, some of the lar- world's largest banks like um, ANZ or Citigroup, um, and then these these infrastructure providers they they tested how that would look on a on a blockchain. So they said, okay, we're gonna you know buy asset A you know um, from this from this blockchain. And so this bank's got a private blockchain and um, the the back office there would still send the same message like they would send before. Like, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to send you funds. But then that would actually also get intercepted by Chainlink's um, technology. Mm-hmm. And then they would send a, a blockchain message saying, okay, um, this is, and but I think they can actually transfer value. So they would also send tokens. So from chain private chain A to private chain B, ch- private chain B receives this. And then DTCC, which was just like a, a, cl- a clearinghouse, mm-hmm. could say, okay. And then they would be able to say values in, securities or, you know, tokenized version of whatever, Apple stock or something yeah. like that, has now been settled in Bank A's ledger on this blockchain B. And that's legally binding because that's they have the ability to do that. Wow. So, Interesting. Yeah. Is Chainlink the leading organization within crypto that's doing stuff like this? Uh, well, um, within crypto, I think that'd probably be a fair statement. Um, but there are a number of different pilots happening with, oh, with different financial market, um, yeah. uh, infrastructure providers. And then, you know, there are groups <laughs> which, you know, this is not always popular, but you actually have groups of, of banks that have got together and doing this themselves. JP Morgan's got this Onyx group, for example, yeah. Goldman Sachs too. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. As you say, it's probably not very popular. <laughs> well, no. It's it's w- w- one of the things that's kind of cool is like if you can stomach listening to like I know this you know very much flies in the in the face of a lot of the ethos here, but if you can get through some of the podcasts that the people from Onyx or or um, Goldman Sachs have put on, I mean maybe it's just all an act, sure. But they're they they have these private blockchains, but they're built in a way that they could be opened up when when, when the time comes. Right. And the reasons for not opening them up is you know because there are a lot of like you know scam scripts and and you know issues where the where the blockchain's not perfect i guess you know uh, sure. and so it, it's an interesting perspective i get it it's not for everyone um but it's uh it, they they the podcasts are easy to find and, and they're uh, they're they're pretty interesting that's great that's that's excellent um sebastian it's been great chatting with you this has been some super helpful and in-depth understanding for um for for especially for those of us who you know don't work in finance and and are grappling with some of these concepts i think you've explained them really well and it's been helpful to get some clarity on this i appreciate you being with me here today uh, thanks for having me um you know hopefully it wasn't too uh too drug and laden and, uh, <laughs> definitely wasn't definitely wasn't <laughs> i do it myself thanks excellent thank you